Hi. Like, if you're sitting way back there, I just am amazed at how many of you are coming right from work? Almost. Um, this is incredible. I, uh, the church I pastored in, in Edmonton, we used to say, you couldn't pay people to come out on a Sunday night. And if you did, they still wouldn't come, but they'd take the money. Because uh, it was a downtown church, and you never knew where the money was going. But... Uh, so I just think this is remarkable. I, I, to have people out on a Saturday even for, for the church I used to pastor was like unbelievable. We knew you could, they'd come from 9 to 12, but they wouldn't come uh, any time after. But I've only got a half an hour, so I better not waste my time. Um, we're going we're gonna to build on some of the things that we, we talked about yesterday. And I want to thank you. I've, I went home. I was, I've been sick. I got a bad cold. And I went home, crawled. He doesn't care. He says, aw. Ah, <laughs> oh, get over it. He, he's a plumber. Oh, a bu- <laughs> he, oh, he's a murmurer. Oh, <laughs> very good. Now we know. Well, I want to tell you a story just to get started because um, it's helpful. Um, I lived in Toronto. I've lived in exile here in Toronto twice in my life. <laughs> As a Western Canadian, uh, it's, I don't know what it is about Western Canadians, but we have just this aversion to saying that we live in Toronto. I, 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 I don't know if you have that in Oshawa, but we had... An, I, so when people ask me, where are you from? I, I can be in Nairobi, Kenya, and I will say, I'm from Western Canada, but I live in Toronto. <laughs> and in the 1980s, I came um, as a really young guy... To, to begin uh, and develop an urban training program for pastors and missionaries. Uh, it was, uh, if you know the name Rick Tobias and some of those people, it was the one time in my tribe where they let the kind of mavericks loose for just a short amount of time. We scared the living daylights out of them, and then they closed it down quickly. But they asked us to start this postgraduate urban training program, and and I came, and, and I was, it was an amazing experience. We were way ahead of, we didn't know what we were doing, but we just had an inclination, and, uh, and God used it in a very special way. But I got to the point where I began to worry that I was too young to be an expert. I was going to churches and, and talking, and people would kind of listen. And then I read First Timothy, where it describes false teachers, and it says, they know nothing of the things they so confidently assert. <laughs> And I was profoundly uh, affected by that. And I, and I just said, Lord, I'm, I need to go back and put my body where my mouth was. Well, in my tribe, uh, it, and we actually trace our roots to the same tribe. Just wanted you to know that. But at some point, you, as you know, there was a split. Well, one of the reasons it was, we split was because of the church that I went to serve. Uh, it, was the, it was one of the last bastions of classic liberalism uh, in, in my tribe. And it was deader than a doornail. Uh, there was about 40 people left in the cathedral church at First Baptist Edmonton. In a sanctuary probably bigger than this, you could have shot a cannon and you wouldn't have hit a soul. Like it was just... It was, a matter of fact, when I took the call, I remember going... What have I done? <laughs> I walked out one, the first Sunday and I went, oh, uh, there wasn't probably anybody 
Not that there's anything wrong with that. Under the age of 60. Um, and I just wondered what I'd done. And one of the icons of my denomination, a former pastor, when it was alive and vibrant, was still there. Uh, I won't give you his name, because some of you may know the name. But he had decided that uh, he would kind of use me and help me understand what ministry was really all about. In 1955, Star Weekly magazine. How many of you remember Star? Raise your hand if you know Star Weekly. And if you're pretending you don't, because you think you're younger, (laughs) you probably don't, because it doesn't exist anymore. Uh, Star Weekly magazine was a magazine that would often be in the Saturday paper. They usually had a hockey player that you'd rip out of it and, and uh, paste on your wall. It was a national newspaper. It was kind of like McLean's at that time. And in 1955, listen to this, the editorial board of Star Weekly magazine, I think about this, got together and said, I wonder who the top ten preachers in Canada are. Now think about that. Think about McLean's Magazine in 2010 going, you know, a reporter goes in and, I got a great idea for a story. Let's figure out who the top ten preachers are in Canada in 2010. But in 1955, they thought this was a good idea. And this person was named, this person who at First Baptist Edmonton was named one of the top ten preachers in Canada. And I know that because when I would go to visit him, he would remind me <laughs> every time. You would, uh, if you've ever, if you, if for you who are pastors, you know those pastoral visits that you have to suck up. You know, you don't want to do it because it's just a painful, some of you may not know this, a little pastoral insight. Sometimes some of you aren't that fun to visit. Now, I'm sure that none of you here are those people, but some are very difficult. And, and this person was one of those people. I mean, it was just, I knew he was going to rip into me. You'd walk into his place, and there would be a picture, the picture of him. Not Jesus knocking on the door, but of him, right? And it was the picture that had been in the magazine. And he had taken a typewriter, and he typed his name. I won't say who it is. Uh, named one of the top ten preachers in Canada in 1955. And he'd pasted it on the, on the frame. I always used to walk in and go... <laughs> and then go by. So here I am. And then what he would do, is he kind of had decided that his job was to tell me why I was doing what I was doing wrong. And so he would spend most of the, our visit telling me, you know, this is what was wrong with my sermon... You know, when I was in 1955, when I would do this, you know, you know, I used to run this church all by myself. You know, that was my favorite one. As the church grew, um, I used to hear, you know, so-and-so used to run this church all by himself. You know, there was no other staff member. I know, I know, he was really something. And then I'd finish praying with him because I had to get out. And, and then he'd always say, thanks for visiting me. It's really glad you came. Did you know that I was named one of the top ten preachers in Canada? 
1955. And I'd say, oh, no. And then he did this to me every time. Have you ever been named one of the top ten preachers in Canada? And I'd go, no, Edgar. I just hope people come up on Sunday and actually attend. And then I'd go in my car. Because at that point, the church was (laughs) still 40 people. And uh, I'd think carnal thoughts. You know those thoughts, you'd think great retorts that you wish you could make to him? My best one. <laughs> My best one was this. Uh, his name. And then, whatever happened to Star Weekly anyway? <laughs> it's gone. It's dead. Now that story, for me, is like a paradigm understanding. It's, it's like the paradigm story that helps me understand. You see, I'm not saying that 1955 was bad. Do you, please hear that. But it's not 1955 anymore. I mean, my, our cathedral church, I can name this church, York Minster Park in Toronto, in my tribe, Right? I preach a sermon. The title is this. It ain't Kansas anymore, Toto. (laughs) Right? And a guy comes right up to me, right in my face. And he says, we haven't changed this worship service since 1929. (laughs) I didn't know what to say. I said, has anything else in your life not changed since 1929? And he goes, No. I said, then I'm not sure, sir, I'd brag about that. You see, it's not that there, when, when we talk about the need for change or that things are changing, it's not a value judgment on what was. And I think that's the most important thing to understand. It's just that, unfortunately, we don't live in that time anymore. And to be, I'll, I'll just be very frank. Our forebearers as Baptists, not that you're a big B Baptist church, but our forebearers understood this. The question that Baptist churches have to ask in every generation is this. What does it mean to be the church now? Not in the past. Learn from it. But what does it mean? I mean, that was why we... I mean, that's why the Reformers and the Catholics drowned us. (laughs) You know, in the radical reference, if you know your church history, the Anabaptist movement, it came out of a time when it said, there needs to be a church for this time, not for the past. And so the questions we're asking when we're talking about what does it mean to be the church now are questions that are profoundly part of our heritage. What does it mean to be the church now? And it doesn't have to be a value judgment on the past. Um, I grew up in one of the flagship churches. There used to be 2,000 people on a Sunday morning in the church I grew up in. And it's gone through a terrible time, and my mom and dad are still there in their late 80s. And I have a friend who's the pastor there, and he's bringing all this kind of new life to this place, and it's wonderful. And my mother wants it to grow, and it wants to feel, but he's taken the pulpit down. 
her favorite pulpit. And he moved it out into the front foyer and put a book on it. You know, so that he, at least he didn't... Did you do that here? <laughs> no, at least he didn't throw it out, I told my mom. But think about it. And, and she says, and I was arguing with him. And then he said, well, what do you think Gary would think about this? And my mother said, oh, he'd think it was a good idea. I said, you're right. Quickly, let's look at, at John chapter 5. Because I want to I build on this idea that Jesus actually shows us the way to begin to answer these questions. And this is the story of the man at the pool of Bethesda, another, another kind of well-known story. And it's the story of a man who is profoundly in this, this, this kind of downward spiral. For 38 years, he has been alone and discouraged. And I don't know if you've ever been in, in depression or something like that. Uh, what you don't need is somebody coming out of nowhere and asking you, do you want to get well? Which is what Jesus does. And you know the answer to it because he gives the answer that he probably would give his social worker. You know, life's not fair. There ought to be a number system like they have in the bakery. You know, pick a number. When it's my turn, I'll get in. That's, that's kind of his answer. I mean, to, to Jesus' answer, do you want to get well, out of nowhere... He just says, gee, this is a man who's given up. And in the midst of this man's downward spiral of despair, Jesus gives this sharp liberating command where he says, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Now, I just want to, I won't point it out too quickly, but I just want you to notice, if you read on in the story, he encounters the religious establishment. You didn't do this right. Right? But we'll come back to that. I want, I want to just... Remember yesterday I said Zacchaeus is in the crowd? Well, in this case, I want to point out that Jesus actually finds this guy. Of all of the things, of all of the people in this crowd, Jesus zeroes in on this guy. Now, not only is he in the crowd, he actually focuses on this guy. Now, I don't know what you do with that. I don't remember much in theology, which please don't tell the people at Tyndale that. Uh, <laughs> when I, I studied at Fuller Theological Seminary, and, and I remember, uh, some of you may know, know the name Jeffrey Bromley. Uh, he was one of my, he was my history professor. And uh, a very proper Englishman, wore a tie gardening. Uh, you know, I mean, and uh, his prayers were unbelievable in class, but his lectures were incredibly boring. And his classes were at eight in the morning, and generally most of us slept through the class. And one day, uh, as I was sleeping, I heard my name, Mr. Nelson. And one of my friends elbows me, he says, he wants you to pray. I jumped up and I said, oh Lord, I want to thank you for, and all my friends are laughing. And Bromley says, Mr. Nelson, sit down. Turns out he was actually trying to wake me up. <laughs> and he didn't want me to pray, but my friends decided to play a joke on me. And then he said this. Now hear this. He said this. And for some reason, 
I won't do it. For some reason, he stood up on a chair. It was the most bizarre action by a very proper Englishman. And he said, Mr. Nelson, if you remember nothing, which is very likely, he said, since you have slept through most of my classes, at least remember this. God is a seeking God. A seeking God. From Genesis to Revelation is the story of a God who will not let you go. From Genesis to Revelation is a story of a God who is always actively going after you. I have never forgotten that. And it causes me to ask the question that I asked yesterday. If that's the case, then why is it that we have become so passive in the churches? That why is it that if God is a seeking God, we have become a people passively waiting for those people to come to see us? Now, I want to be very clear. We need to have a place where we gather and where we worship. We need to be a gathered people. But people aren't just getting up on a Sunday morning and coming to church anymore. It requires the very act of God. The God who seeks calls the church to go as well. Jesus finds this person. I also want you to notice this. He deals with this person. Like he kind of breaks the shell that's behind this person. He gets behind it with that question. Do you want to get well? The answer is, no. I've given up. Sometimes the church thinks they're dealing with the real problem, and they're not. Uh, We think that the issue, and and, and we kind of generally call it sin, because then we think we're dealing with it. Uh, But we may not know what the issue is. Now, I hesitate to tell you this story, but I'm going to tell it to you anyway. For a time, I lived in this apartment block when I was single and I was a pastor. And it was a very interesting place because it was mostly young professionals and uh, very well-to-do young professionals. I knew I was in the wrong place when I saw the cars in the parking lot. And, uh, but it, I became kind of like their, their Baptist mascot. Like, they'd love to introduce me. This is Gary. He's our Baptist pastor. (laughs) There weren't many living in the apartment block at that time. (laughs) So he'd say these kind of things. And and so I'd go to the parties, because I would always be the designated driver. Um, But we had these interesting conversations. Uh, One day I was at one of the parties, and it was a Saturday night, so I'd gone home, because I had to preach the next morning. And the next morning I got up and I, I was walking to my car and Val was walking and it was an underground parking lot. She was in her bathrobe and she was coming from one of the other towers. Now, I'm a pastor. I can spot a sinner a mile away because her apartment's right next to mine. And she's coming from a totally different tower. And I remembered at the party she was hanging out with John. I got her. Val is 41, vibrant, alive, was beaten up by her first husband. Um, She's very wealthy because she's a great medical sales person. 
I got it. We talked for a bit. And I got in my car and started driving to church. And I thought this. I wonder what my church would think of Val. How would they see her? Would they be willing to get past the shell to what really is going on there? You see, we might think of it as lust and sexuality. You know what I mean? But for Val, it was about aloneness and loneliness. You see, if you don't understand that for Val at 41, in the kind of place that she's lived her life, one night with John was better than one night alone, then you'll never be able to offer the good news of Jesus Christ to her. Doesn't mean her behavior is right. Doesn't mean any of those things. But if you can't break that shell and see the real person, if you can't let, if you can't let Jesus help you break that shell, if you can't see that person, it's hard to offer the gospel. Because you won't know what the good news is. The good news for Val is not you can control your sexuality. (laughs) The good news for Val is you are the beloved of God. You are loved by God. You can be held. And there's a place you can belong and you don't have to be alone. Third thing I want you to notice here is that Jesus deals with this person physically long before he deals with this person spiritually. I mean, other times he deals with the person spiritually. But this is one of those places where he deals with the person physically. Like, he, deal, he heals them. Long before he deals with his sin, he deals with this person physically. He finds them. He breaks through the shell. He deals with the real problem. In, in the organization I used to lead, uh, we, uh, we worked with the Africa Brotherhood Church in Kenya uh, during one of the droughts, and they, and they offered food to villages, whether they were Muslim villages or Christian villages. And at one point, the witness of that church, of the Africa Brotherhood Church, was so profound that two of the Muslim villages asked them to plant a church in that, in that village because of what they had done incarnationally by offering food to them in a, in a time of need. You know, some of the programs you develop are like ports of entry programs in which it deals with a physical need, but, but, it, but it offers them the possibility of relationships with you. Jesus finds them. He breaks through the shell. He deals with his real issue. Now, I want you to notice real quickly that the religious establishment are not all that happy. Why? I always ask that. You know, why is it that Jesus... I think part of it is that we got God bagged. <laughs> you know, like, we know how... We've got him in a box. We, we actually have dictated how he should respond. Sometimes when I drive, I think weird thoughts about Scripture. <laughs> you're getting to know me, you're not surprised. I was thinking of this. What if... For 38 years, this guy had been fantasizing about what it would like, be like to be healed. You know? You know, you, you, you got a lot of time in your hand lying on a mat. 
you're lying on this mat and you're kind of thinking, hmm, what if for 38 years he fantasized about the bubbles? You know, his friends would get there in time. They'd grab him. The bubbles would come up. Doesn't matter what you believe, he believed. The bubbles would come up. His friends would grab. They'd rush him out into the water and they'd slip him, you know, they'd push him and he'd kind of float into the water and he'd get into the bubbles and the bubbles would come up around him and he'd go, oh! And his limbs would straighten out and he'd get up and he'd stand in the water because it wasn't deep and he'd start to walk out and everybody who wanted to be healed would be going, way to go. This is good. With great pride, he'd walk right by his mat. Who needs a mat? What if for 38 years he had been fantasizing about the bubbles? And then out of nowhere, out of nowhere, some guy comes up and says, Get up! Pick up your mat. And walk. But I wanted the bubbles. Like, where's the bubbles? I'm, wait a minute. This isn't the way it's supposed to happen. I think that's the way we are in the church. You know, like we've, we've assigned the way it works. This, you know, we've even seen the way it works. And now we've systematized it. This is the way it happens. And then God decides to say, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. I mean, one of the most striking things that's happening, when you have more and more people who have less and less Christian memory, is that sometimes people come to faith before they actually figure it all out. Um, We got a Bible for that. It's called Acts. I mean, over and over again. I mean, we wouldn't even have a New Testament if we hadn't had that problem in the first century. Right? I mean, Paul wouldn't have had to write half his letters if they weren't having trouble figuring it all out. Are you with me? Right? You know, like, He's forever writing them going, hmm, just a second. I don't think you got it right. Let's try to... That's because when you become what I call a borderland church, you become messy. I mean, you get people who don't understand, don't get it. Do I have one more story? Oh, he's looking up at his clock. One more story. All right. Because that means... That it's your convenience that's the issue, not theirs. It's you that has to move over in a borderland church because they're going to make this place messy. So I I give an altar call. You've done this, Rick. I don't mean an altar call. I mean, but you just kind of got into your sermon and you're going, this is good. (laughs) Like like something's happening here. And I just thought I'd, I'd leave a chance. Now, I need to say, first, by that time had grown. 90% of the people were new in the church. 
75% of them wouldn't have known what a Baptist was, was if it had walked across their nose. 50% of them had never been to church until they came to First Baptist, okay? So this was, like, bizarre. And it had everything from university professors to street people. So you never knew what was going to happen. And I gave an altar call thinking this was a great idea. And nobody came forward. I was moved, <laughs> but nobody else came <laughs> forward. <laughs> So I thought I should accept the Lord again. <laughs> Just, but anyway, so I went to the back to shake hands. And this woman comes up to me, and she says, now excuse me, this is exactly what she said. Please don't be offended by this. But this is exactly what she said. What the hell did you want me to do? I remember going, uh, excuse me? <laughs> I said, excuse me? Please don't be offended by that. That's exactly what happened. She doesn't know the language. She didn't even know the choreography. Right? I thought she understood, and I tried to explain very well. She hit me again. I should never have said, what? <laughs> she said, what the hell did you want me to do? Now, Mrs. B.A., 97 years old, has never heard the pastor at the door talk like this. <laughs> Her eyes are wide. She's going to kill me. Or kill the person, one or the other. And I'm worried she's going to have a heart attack. So I grab the woman and her husband, and I take them into the cloakroom. You know, because that's how I was treated when I was a kid, when I misbehaved. <laughs> so I took them into the cloakroom. And I said, what's the matter? And she said it again. You said something about taking Jesus seriously. We've been coming to this church for six months. I looked at my husband, and I said, it's time. I think Gary's saying we should take this thing seriously, this faith thing, and I think it's time. And then she looked at me, and she hit me again. And Gary, I didn't know what the hell I was supposed to do. Then she hit me again. <laughs> she said, next time, you damn well better give better instructions. Okay, she doesn't know the language, but she wants to know Jesus. That's the tension in the 21st century. See, they used to come, and at least they knew what they were supposed to do. But people who have less and less memory have less and less understanding on how to, how, how to respond in these times. So who's going to be the church that moves over for people? That kind of goes, I'll tell you more stories tomorrow, but that kind of goes, gee, you know, I don't care. I'll stand on my head to win someone to Christ. I, I, as a matter of fact, Paul says it. I do, I become all things to all people. Why? so that I might win some. Now, don't ask me that question that all, everybody always asks next. How far do you go? I'll tell you. As far as it takes, as long as it doesn't go outside of Scripture. Let's not use that as an out. The real question is, what missionaries do on a 24-7 lifestyle in another culture? What do they do? 
they learn how to live in the culture and in the inconvenience and in the discomfort and in the language and all of the things that maybe aren't comfortable for them but are the world that they're living in at that time. That's the challenge for the church in the 21st century. That's the challenge. I have so many stories I could tell, but I won't. So, tomorrow, here's, the, here's your homework. Uh, what is the Mary and Martha story about? It's a little teaser. Just in case you were thinking of watching the hockey game. I wanna, you know the Mary and Martha story? I want you to think about it. What's the Mary and Martha story? And why would he use that as his final vignette about Jesus? Okay? Bless you. Have great workshops. Thanks for coming. <laughs>